You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of Yahweh again. And Yahweh answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, your servant, has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Yahweh, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And Yahweh said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before Yahweh. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hachilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. 
Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Welcome back. It's that time again. Time for the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Starring maybe yours truly, I suppose. I suppose it's my show, so is it appropriate for me to say that the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show stars Garrett Ashley Mullet? Probably. Probably so. What does that even mean? We'll talk about it. (laughs) I want to talk about everything. That's my tagline, and that's the truth. I want to talk about everything. In this episode, though, which is episode 741, on Wednesday, October 25th, 2023, let's start by talking about 1 Samuel chapter 23. That, the best passage for us to be reading today, is that the best passage for us to be pondering? Well, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what we are told that's what we're promised in the New Testament, and that would have to include for Samuel chapter 23. This must be edifying. But then remember with me what four things all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to do. There are four tasks that all scripture is profitable to be used for or in. They are teaching, Reproof, correction, and training. Teaching, that's self-evident. You don't know necessarily until somebody teaches you. You don't know that David saved the city of Keilah. You don't know that Saul pursued David. You don't know that it was a real concern even after David saving the city of Keilah. And it was from God. In fact, it wasn't just, ooh, maybe, you know, wild speculation. No, no. David asked God. He had a sense that maybe these guys will hand me over to Saul. And he asked God, and God said, yes, these men will hand you and your men over to Saul. And then they go down to the wilderness of Ziph, and the Ziphites go and seek out Saul and say, hey, he's over here. Are you going to come get him? You wouldn't know that this was a thing that happened and that it's relevant. It's relevant by God's design that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You wouldn't know that unless somebody taught you. But then what is reproof? We don't talk about reproof. That's not a word that's in the vernacular these days in common usage. It's an older word. What is reproof that we would 
employ 1 Samuel chapter 23 to reprove. Oxford Languages tells me that reproof is a noun and its meaning is an expression of blame or disapproval. Think rebuke. Think admonishment. Think reprimand. If you've ever been chided, if somebody has ever scolded you, if they've ever waved the finger, wagged a finger at you, that's what reproof is, which is to say that all scripture is there to tell us what should be scolded, what should be disapproved of, what should be reprimanded. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof. It's not just facts. If it's just teaching, that can get to be trivia. That can get to be, oh, who knows the most? Who knows the most names? Who's going to win if we have a square off on knowledgeability? And it can puff up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. How can you be built up if nobody ever tells you, uh uh-uh, nope, when you say what you shouldn't say, when you do what you shouldn't do, teaching is not enough. It's not supposed to be all there is to it. You also need reproof, rebuke. Some things should be disapproved of. Some things should, some behaviors, some attitudes, some comments should be scolded. Hey, no, 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 no. Nope. That is not approved. That is not good. But then correction is distinct. Correction is another thing that is profitable for all scripture, breathed out by God, to be used for. Correction is the other side of the coin. As far as I'm concerned, you have rebuke and then you have correction. If it's all just scolding, well then that's discouraging. That's demoralizing. That's not edifying. If the other person comes to the conclusion that everything they do is wrong, nothing is correct, everything they say is not true, or that's not quite the way you should have said it, everything that they feel is amiss, And there's never anything correct. That's not healthy. That's not loving. In fact, that's not biblical. It is appropriate for you to correct so that the other person can be correct or so that you can be correct. It's important that people would be correcting you. And if you're a Christian and you're a person who loves God, you should be inquiring of God as to what you should do. What should I do here? What should I say here? If you're a Christian, you should want other saints, other people who love God, who love his word, to at times disapprove of what you said, what you did. Hopefully they'll be kind about it. Hopefully they'll be gentle about it. If not, they might need a correction right back. They might need a little bit of teaching themselves. But generally speaking, you need, I need, we need somebody to be coming along and teaching us. Otherwise, how will we know? We need somebody to be disapproving at times when we're doing what we ought not to, saying what we ought not to say, but we also need somebody to correct us so that they will show us, demonstrate to us, explain to us what would be good to do instead. Hey, don't do this. Do this instead. Don't say that. Say this instead. Don't have that attitude. Have this attitude. Have this mindset. Lastly, training, right? Training in righteousness is overlooked, not overrated, underrated, underappreciated, neglected. Training in righteousness implies you practice it. That implies that the teaching part is distinct from the training part, as in you may have the knowledge, 
And then the training part is practical application. All right, you have the theory from teaching. You understand the concept from teaching. Now I want you to do it. Now don't be a hearer of the word only. Be a doer also. If all four things, if all four of these are being expressed, pursued, embraced in relation to how we handle scripture, all scripture breathed out by God, the man of God will be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's curious. The man of God is supposed to be about good works, not saved by good works. No, 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 no. Not our own anyway. God does good work, has done good work in Christ Jesus, and he does a good work in us. And the good work that he begins in us, if we're in Christ, he will be faithful to complete it. But he also has good work for us to do, and we're in need of equipping. We need to be given the tools. We need to be given the appreciation of what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, and then behave accordingly. It's not just knowledge. It's not just knowledge that puffs up. It's love that builds up. And if love is not there, if love for God, love for one another is not there, then that's where you see all the trouble. Either the scriptures are neglected or they're twisted. And remember, even Satan can quote scripture. So somebody quoting scripture is not a sign. That's not all there is to it. Think about 1 Samuel 23 and part of what's included in the narrative here. Note, don't miss it. When these men of Ziph, the Ziphites, as they're called, come to Saul and they say, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? What does Saul say in reply? May you be blessed by Yahweh, for you have had compassion on me. Now let's just pause right there and soak it in. Marinate in that for a moment. Is this a valid blessing? Is God actually going to bless the Ziphites because Saul said so? Oh, well, Saul said, Yahweh bless you. So I guess, you know, God approves of this. No, 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 no. <clears throat> By no means. <clears throat> For that matter, too, Saul says, you've had compassion on me. Again, this is all about Saul. Saul's all about himself. Very in touch with his feelings. For those who think that the problem with masculinity these days is that men are not in tune with their feelings enough. They're not honest enough about their feelings. No, 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 no. See also emotivism. See also the rise and triumph of the modern self. Maybe our issue is not that men are disconnected from their feelings. Maybe the issue is that we're all far too in tuned, far too in touch with our feelings. In fact, we're led around by our feelings. That's Saul here. He feels anger towards David. He wants to kill him. These guys would seem to be offering him the chance to be relieved of the aggravation of David. Everything's David's fault. The harmful spirit from Yahweh, clearly David's fault. Kill him and all your problems will be solved. That's how Saul feels, but it's not true. It's not good. It's an ugly, ugly thing. And everybody has to know that unless they're dishonest folk. And some of these people are dishonest folk. David, for his part, does not consult his feelings. He may be feeling things, sure, but he doesn't consult his feelings when it's time to decide whether to go down to Keilah and save the city of Keilah. Actually, as a matter of fact, speaking of feelings again, 
Initially, David asks because they, who's they? I don't know. They being people, right? Somebody, several someones, plural someones, told David the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, robbing the threshing floors. David asks God. He doesn't consult his feelings. He asks God, shall I go and attack these Philistines? That's a yes or no. God says, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But, verse 3, David's men said to him, look, it says behold, but I'm going to put it in the common vernacular here. I'm going to give you the GSV, the Garrett Standard Version. Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? These men are very in touch with their feelings. What does David do? What does David do? He says, oh, well, in that case, you're right. Let's not go. I mean, I asked God, but God must not have known that you were afraid. So, you know, I'll explain to God that you guys are afraid and we're not going. We're not doing that now. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank. I appreciate you sharing with me your feelings. Very good. Very good that you know you're afraid. On the contrary, David inquired of Yahweh again. And Yahweh answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Does David say, ooh, man, this is tough. This is tough. I know God wants us to go, but you guys are afraid. Let's just stick around. Let's just wait, right? Let's just wait until everybody's not afraid anymore. Is that what he does? No, they go anyway. Oh, you're afraid? Cool. We're still going. (laughs) You're just going to have to sort through that. You're going to have to command yourself You're going to have to master your emotional state, your emotional condition. You're going to have to get a hold of yourself, as they might say back in the day. Get a hold of yourself. Pull yourself together. That's one of the lines, in fact, that is so much argued over with this business about toxic masculinity these days. Do we see toxic masculinity in 1 Samuel 23? I would say, if you want to call it that, if that's the term you prefer, I hate it, but Saul is a great example of toxic masculinity. For that matter, however, it's just sinfulness. It's just wickedness. And whether David says in so many words, you know what, guys? Get it together. Contain yourself. Control yourself. We're going anyways. Get over it. Suck it up, buttercup. Whether he says it in so many words, that's what it is. Verse 5, and David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock, and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And what ingrates, what ungrateful people, because here David and his men saved them. And also, for that matter, what's interesting is, if there are 600 men now with David, about, did they gain 200 men from Keilah? How many men were in Keilah otherwise? If there were enough more men in Keilah that they could hand David and his men over to Saul. Why didn't they protect the city themselves? Why didn't they save their own city? Hmm? You might say that the Philistines were displaying some toxic masculinity. You might say that the men of Keilah who would have handed David over to Saul were showing some toxic masculinity. You might say that the Ziphites who went up to Saul in verse 19 were being 
ensnared by toxic masculinity. But a better, more helpful, more biblical term here would just be sin. It's not toxic masculinity. It's just sin. It's sinful man behaving in a wicked way. That's what it is. It's faithlessness. It's pride. It's not being too little in tune with your emotions. It's being led around by your emotions, following your heart, trust to yourself, be who you are. Well, wait, what if who I am really needs overhauled? What if I need refurbished? What if I need completely to be renovated by God? What then? To call it toxic masculinity would be to not call it the right thing. It's sin. It's wickedness. But on the one hand, you have wicked men. And on the other hand, on the other hand, you have men who either A, inquire of God and do what God says, or even if they're conflicted, they follow the man who inquires of God and who does what God says to do. They follow that guy. He knows God. He seeks after God. We're going to follow him because we also want that. We recognize how good that is. We recognize that that is a blessing. And on the flip side, you have somebody who's engaging in God talk. Saul engages in God talk, sprinkling in a blessing here. Bless you. Yahweh bless you. May you be blessed by Yahweh for you have had compassion on me. Oh, there we go. Compassion. This is all about love, right? Don't you love Saul? This isn't about loving Saul. This is about a grave injustice being perpetrated, even just in the pursuit. The pursuit itself is an injustice. The fact that Saul has not caught David, his men have not caught David and killed him is beside the point. Even the pursuit is an injustice. It's a wicked thing. But Saul says, David is cunning. It is told to me that he is very cunning. Ah, okay. So you attribute his evading you to this point to his being very cunning, and maybe he is very cunning, but you don't want to admit that God is with David. But then here's curious thing number 73 or whatever we're up to. Jonathan speaks with David and says, do not fear. There's that feeling again. Why say it unless you would be sorely tempted in this case to be afraid. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. When did Saul find out? When did Jonathan find out? How long have they known? It doesn't say. Although there are hints that Saul is afraid of this from when the women come out of the cities singing and dancing, singing to one another about Saul having killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Saul begins to wonder, begins to suspect that David will be king, and that's why he hates him. That's why he wants to entrap him. From all outside appearances, Saul is rewarding a faithful servant when he gives the hand of his daughter Michal to David in marriage. David will be the king's son-in-law, but it's a trap. And yet, it's a trap that Saul himself falls into because how bad does it look at a certain point when this is your own son-in-law? Not just are you violating every norm, not just are you doing something terribly unethical against a loyal servant, an innocent man of Israel, in the sight of all, and then murdering and threatening 
Anybody who would disagree with you about it, call you to account for it, not help you, would actually help him to get away from you. It's not just that. You're also doing an incredibly evil, corrupt thing by seeking the life of your own son-in-law. Saul has lost it. This is why. He was already this person. He was already this character. Before he started doing the things, it was in his heart to do these things before he started to do these things. And that's why you can't just blindly trust whatever you feel, whatever you want. No, don't be so in touch with your emotions that you would just follow them. Know them, right? Recognize them. If you're afraid, hey, admit that you're afraid and endeavor to fear not. Endeavor to inquire of God what he would have you do and then do that. Inquire of God what he would have you to remember and think on that. More to come. This is not the end. This is not the end of the story of David, obviously. But as far as it goes, this would make a fantastic, a fantastic movie or video game. Somebody needs to do this story of David justice in film on the big screen or in a TV series or what would be great some role-playing game, something like Assassin's Creed, that kind of a game. Wouldn't that be neat? Wouldn't that be cool? I think so. I think it'd be great. But enough about 1 Samuel chapter 23 for now, for this episode. Let's get into our other stories for today. First up, let's talk about Merid Elordi's bit of reporting from October 20th at the Daily Wire, Oregon extends pandemic pause on reading, writing, math, proficiency, high school graduation requirement. That's the headline with the subtitle, Previously High School Students Had to Complete an Essential Skills Assessment. (laughs) Get a load of this. The Oregon Board of Education's unanimous decision extends the pandemic-era pause on the graduation requirement, which was paused in 2021 through the end of the current school year by former Governor Kate Brown, a Democrat. Previously, high school students had to complete an essential skills standardized test in reading, writing, and math in order to graduate. Advocates for pausing the graduation requirement previously argued that the test puts certain children, including minority and low-income children, at a disadvantage. Quote, under the best of circumstances, in totally normal times with no pandemic, there are a number of children who don't test well. Rochelle Chase, who founded a social justice and education advocacy group, said last year when the requirement was paused, adding that it is, quote, not a deficit on the part of those children, end quote. However, prior to Thursday's vote, dozens of Oregonians submitted public comments demanding the proficiency test requirement be enforced again. Opponents argued that the extra instruction most high schools provided because of the graduation requirement had helped students. Quote, we haven't suspended any sort of assessments. State board member Vicky Lopez Sanchez who is also a dean at Portland Community College, said Thursday, quote, the only thing we are suspending is the inappropriate use of how those assessments were being used. I think that really is in the best interest of Oregon students, end quote. Since the pandemic, students across the nation have suffered significant learning loss and in many cases are struggling to perform at their grade level. Math scores plummeted among fourth and eighth graders in almost every state the education department reported last year. Reading scores have also sunk across the country, erasing the previous three decades of progress. Many students returned to classrooms last year, reading at the same level as when the pandemic started, putting them two grade levels behind. Last year, eighth graders had the lowest U.S. history 
scores on record and among the lowest civics scores the Department of Education revealed in May. Only about 13% of 8th graders met proficiency standards for U.S. history last year, and only about a fifth of students were proficient or better in civics. Exacerbating the problem, students in 4th through 8th grade are actually making slower academic progress now than before the pandemic a study released over the summer showed, dashing hopes that kids would learn faster to make up for learning loss. Early evidence of learning loss spurred parents across the country to demand schools return to in-person learning, especially after data showed that children were at low risk for serious cases of COVID. Some parents even ran for school board positions and won, hoping to stop the learning loss in their district. So what do we make of this? First up, not to rub anybody's nose in it if you're not able to or you haven't had the courage if you've been afraid to do this or you just can't make it work logistically or financially. I don't mean to make you feel ashamed. I'm not trying to rub your nose in it, but this is why we homeschool. This is not out of any ill will towards others, but because I am confident that my children are getting a good education at home. Not that they're always focused, not that they're always on task, not that my, not, not that my (laughs) wife and I are always on point on every little thing, and our kids are just the smartest, best, fastest, strongest winners you ever did see in every category all the time. No, no, no. That's not the point, right? It's not because we're so much better than everybody else, and it's not because we want people to think that we're so much better than everybody else, and it's not out of contempt, but it is because I genuinely believe, as I explain in my book, and this is why we homeschool, which I published at the very end of 2020, as I explain, I am confident that my kids can receive, are receiving, will receive a better education at home than they will ever get in a public school environment. And I'm confident that that's true, not just because my wife is my wife and I am me and my kids are who they are. I'm confident that's the case because of the fundamental nature of the public education system at root philosophically, not just the woke business and not just the way that teachers unions carry on and not just because of gender theory and critical race theory. No, no. Because of what the American compulsory government schooling model was based off of as a template, it's fundamentally flawed. It's not supposed to make our kids smarter. It's not supposed to give them the tools of learning. It's supposed to, wait for it, Take a deep breath. It's supposed to make most of them into obedient slaves. To academic elites, progressives, secular types, socialists, it's supposed to make them slaves to the agenda and the worldview and the vision of the good life that progressives in this country have had for over a century. The fruit that's being born right now is just the latest thing, but the seed was bad because it came from Prussia. It came from Frederick the Great's Prussian ambition to have 99 out of 100 of the students who went through Prussian schools be either obedient factory workers or obedient soldiers who wouldn't let conscience get in the way, who wouldn't let filial piety get in the way, who wouldn't let their religious convictions get in the way of obeying whatever they were told by their superiors, ultimately Frederick the Great himself, whatever they were told to do by their superiors. It's set up in such a way 
as to be obedience training first and foremost, and only secondarily are our kids given in that kind of an environment with that kind of a system, that kind of a framework, only secondarily are they receiving anything approaching what would historically, traditionally, holistically be regarded as an education. But I look at this and I think to myself, as somebody who was homeschooled growing up, as somebody who's been very critical of public education, as somebody whose kids have been homeschooled the whole way up to this point, with the exception of some community college classes last year for my two oldest sons, I look at this and I say, this is why we homeschool. Now, it's fine to drop some of these assessment tests, in my view. I'm good with that, actually, because I don't think that standardized testing is the best measure. But they do. (laughs) They think that standardized testing, proficiency standards, are a good measure. And the only reason that they're bypassing whether somebody is proficient in reading, writing, math, history, civics, et cetera, more broadly. The only reason they're bypassing it is because they really messed up the kids with the lockdowns. They really messed up these kids and they got in their heads that there's no point. It's all craziness. It's all politics. It's all these kids being radicalized and turned into activists. And mom and dad are upset with the teachers and the principals and the superintendents and the Department of Education. And that's no environment that, that, that's no kind of environment to be sitting down and focusing on how to read. How to read a book, not just to know the words, but to understand meaning, to be enriched in mind and heart and soul, to be instructed. That's no environment to be able to focus and concentrate and get something out of it in. And that's besides it. <laughs> you're factoring in the climate change hysteria. You tell a whole generation that there's no future for you. If you're white, you should be apologizing everywhere you go. And you should be glad when opportunities that would have been afforded to you based on excellence are going to be given to a person of color or to somebody who is gender nonconforming or whatever. The supposedly oppressed and marginalized peoples, you should be glad that they're going to get whatever otherwise would have been given to you if you really push hard and excel and apply yourself and work hard, you should be glad for that. Well, in that kind of an environment where it's just going to be given to the social justice warrior to decide, why would you excel? Why would you push yourself? It's just going to be taken as further proof of your privilege that you're going to have to apologize for even more. And why would you be a productive member of society? Why would you build into a system which you've been told whether it's true or not, you've been told is repressing and oppressing women, people of color, gender nonconforming folks, homosexuals. Why would you want to learn about the history of your country if either A, it's going to be put in a positive light that we are Americans and this is where we come from and this is how we got our government in the form that it now is kind of operating in, why would you want to learn about the history of how the Declaration of Independence was written and then defended on battlefields? How how are you supposed to care? Uh, These kids, it's not their fault. It's the fault of the teachers' unions and the academic elites. It's the fact that these educrats are selfish. 
They're operating out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And now they're trying to paper over their having really done a whole generation of kids dirty, having really neglected them, having really abused them. Honestly, if you ask me, this is psychological abuse that the radical left has applied to a whole generation of young people and their parents, let's be honest. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why I would never send my kids to public schools here in America. Not because I'm all that worked up about proficiency tests, but because they are. And the only reason they're saying, oh, you don't have to actually meet any of these proficiency requirements to graduate. It makes it a farce, right? It makes it a farce. Why not just grant all of these kids a diploma now? Why do they even need to finish their schooling from here till their senior year? Why not just give them a high school diploma now? If it's all the same, there's no concept of having proven, having demonstrated that you did what you came there to do, which was to get an education. By your own metrics, by your own standards, apparently that doesn't matter anymore. And this is where I say a parent may not be an education expert, strictly speaking, according to the left, but a parent must be and is in the best of all possible places to be an expert on their own child, an expert on their own son or daughter's personality, interests, proclivities, temperament, their own child's proficiency, and yes, also character, because that's the other piece of this, is parents have a charge from God to instruct their children. Train up your child in the way he should go. When he's older, he will not depart from it. Fathers are supposed to do that. Mothers are supposed to do that. Children are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, not honor the state as if the state is your mom and dad. Now, not obey the state as if the state is your mother and father. Now, obey your mother and father, children. Honor your father and mother, children. Listen to their instruction and their teaching. You will be blessed. These folk in Oregon and across the country, not just in Oregon, also in D.C., and therefore to the extent that they can exert influence and hold the money over the heads of states and local school districts. These folks in D.C. who are bureaucrats, they're lobbyists, they're teachers' unions, bosses who might be sending their own kids to a private school. Actually, even as they're saying, the common man, the typical mom and dad shouldn't be allowed to have school choice. Those folks have no credibility in my mind. I don't trust them for a moment. They call themselves experts. Other people call them experts. I think they're experts in fraud. I think they're experts in deceit. No, I would not trust my children to them. Not for a moment. No, thank you. But for our next story, let's turn to Not to Be, Harris Rigby, over at Not to Be, as he asks a good question, why did Gavin Newsom just make a surprise visit to China to meet Xi Jinping? Here's cut one. I'll play it for you. Here's the sound of Gavin Newsom meeting Chinese President Xi inside China's Great Hall of the People. Alex Michelson tweets out, X's out. <laughs> He's the first governor to visit China since 2019. Here you go. Here's cut one, what that sounds like. Thank you. 
非常感谢您，谢谢刘队，What you can't see, if you're just listening, is them shaking hands, and then they take their seats. Alex Michelson says that the California governor told him they focused mostly on ways they can tackle climate change and fentanyl abuse together. Now, it's worth noting that Buck 380 at not no account replied to this, oh, he's running. Supposedly, according to the write-up from Harris Rigby, about 90% of all illegal fentanyl in the U.S. originally comes from China. So it would seem China does need a talking to. But what's this about climate change? Why are you talking about combating climate change with Xi Jinping? Why? (laughs) Why? I really want to know. I really want an explanation. And no, I don't accept that China is somebody we have to get a deal with on that. I don't accept that. Not when what's going on in Ukraine is really a proxy war between the United States and China. The U.S. and our NATO allies are backing Ukraine. China is backing Russia. I don't accept when that's the case that what we really need to sit down with them about is climate change. No, not when they're ramping up their economy and their granted waivers. They don't have to play by the rules, but they're going to be consulted on what the rules are that the U.S. and our NATO allies will play by as far as how we fuel our economy, how we electrify our industries, our commercial sectors, our homes. I don't accept that we need to talk with China about how to combat climate change. No, thank you. We need to figure out how to keep them from taking over the world. How do we deter their aggressive moves all over the world in third world countries, making strategic investments that amount to colonization effectively? That's what we should be talking with them about, not talking with them about climate change. No, thank you. Malenka on X, formerly known as Twitter, tweeted out, while Governor Ron DeSantis bans China scooping up Florida farmland, Gavin Newsom courts Xi like a new girlfriend. Hard pass. Yeah, he is, I'm sure, going to run for president. And that is highly unfortunate, nauseating even. But I'll play for you now, cut two, on a related note. A big thank you to Joel Abbott over at Not the Bee for consistently bringing good stuff to my attention and, by extension, your attention. Over at Not the Bee, here's El Salvador president on America, quote, cities that were pristinely beautiful 30 years ago are wastelands. This has to be by design, end quote. Wall Street Silver tweeted out a video embedded of a clip, a short one, about a minute and a half, not long, of Nayib Bukele, El Salvador's president, sitting down for an interview with Tucker Carlson. Here's that clip. Here's that audio. Cut to. Take a listen. Uh, the demise of the U.S. has to come from within. Right? The enemies have to be inside, not, not really outside. No, no, no external enemy ca- could, 
can cause so much damage as internal. It's an internal operation. And you're, here, and you're watching internal operations here. You, you can see them in, the, in cities, cities that were pristinely beautiful 30 years ago, are wastelands right now. You would see people, I mean, I'm from El Salvador, a third world country in Central America. And myself, I can see cities here and say, I don't want to, I want to live here. So that, that would be unthinkable three decades ago. Totally unthinkable. That a Salvadoran wouldn't want to live in a U.S. city, in a U.S. main city. I mean, Los Angeles, San New York, Francisco, Chicago. Yeah. Well, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore. When you look how the cities are eroding so fast, this has to be by design. I mean, who, who, I mean, who would make so many stupid decisions? Like, okay, we're going we're gonna to give you money for drugs. Really, they're doing that. In some cities, they're giving people drugs. I mean, they're literally giving people drugs in some U.S. cities. Or they say, okay, we're going to give you money if you don't work. Or we're going to, you know, they make all of these laws that make no sense. And yes, yes, quite right. It's almost as though the radical left is trying to tear down America like so many statues of figures from American history. It's almost like, just like they're trying to tear those statues down and rewrite the textbooks, they're also trying to collapse us from within, socially, economically, politically. It's almost as if the radical left, when they get into political power, is trying to bring America very low. It's almost like they hate our country. It's almost like They think that America is the cause of all the problems in the world, and that if America was just brought low systematically, coast to coast, on the international scene, the world would be a better place. Now, I say that, and there are a lot of innocent, naive, uninformed, and yes, fearful people who will say, well, I don't know, right? I don't know if I would go that far. Here, I bring you back to 1 Samuel chapter 23. And a couple of things that are worth noting and that might help us to get a clearer picture of our own dynamics in this day because they're remote, because they're a different time, a different place, different people, a different situation. We don't, we don't have a dog in the fight in 1 Samuel chapter 23, per se. We're not married into any of these families. We don't live in these cities. The Philistines are not coming literally to raid us, attack our cities. The whole premise of 1 Samuel chapter 23 is that Saul is so jealous, he's willing to kill anybody and everybody who would get in the way, who would get between him and murdering David. He's willing to turn the whole country upside down to kill some up-and-coming rival because he knows that David is going to be king and he would rather turn the whole country upside down to suit his own feelings, then step down himself, abdicate, hand it over, apologize, repent. He's so proud. He's so in touch with his feelings. He wants so badly what he wants from selfish ambition and vain conceit. He's not content to be corrupt. He demands that everybody affirm his corruption. Everybody join in with the corruption. And so David is what? A fugitive after a fashion. He's a symbol 
for others of the kind of unfairness, caprice, arbitrariness, selfishness, tyranny that has come already to mark Saul's reign. Some men gather to David, but then even when it is known to them that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors, literally you have your enemies as a people, your nation, the people of Israel are enemies of the Philistines. The Philistines are enemies of Israel. You have the enemies attacking Keilah, robbing these people of their food. God says, go when David asks, but the men who've gathered around David are afraid. They're afraid where they're at. And then he's saying, let's go and attack the Philistines. And they're afraid. And just like you have that in 1 Samuel chapter 23, you have that in our day too. You have people who gather around somebody who symbolizes a more just application of the laws, who is more righteous, who does what is good, who says what is true, who's noble and upright. You have people who have similarly been maligned, defrauded, oppressed, and they're tired of tyranny. They're bitter. They're indebted. They've lost everything gathering around him. And even though they have that in common, even though they trust him, they also at the same time are afraid because what have they not lost yet? They haven't lost their lives. They still have their lives. David inquires of God. God says, go attack the Philistines, save Keilah. And they're afraid. And they say, look, we're afraid here in Judah. But then the flip side is while that's going on in David's camp, Saul pursues David even after delivering the city of Keilah. The men of Keilah would have handed over David and his men to Saul, totally ungrateful. And that too, we have. We have people who are that way. Help, help, please, somebody come help me. And they will turn on a dime to betray the ones who lift the oppression, who rescue them from calamity and certain destruction. They will turn on those folk in an instant. And they do. That's not just your imagination. If it's surprising, it shouldn't be because people are people. Fortunately, God is still God. <laughs> but then you have the men of Ziph, the Ziphites. They know what's up. They know how this game is played. Real politic says, you go to Saul and you tell Saul, here's where to find David. We know what you want. And we know that safety for us relative you comprises of giving you what you want. We have all of these same kinds of people in our day too. We also have the Saul types. We have those who have power and who will malign and slander and bear false witness against anybody who starts to gain traction. They'll insinuate things to tear down the reputation, to tear down the standing of whoever would replace them because they've been faithless. What's it about now for them? It's about holding on to power. It's about holding on to their business model, their profitable situation, their profitable position. And they'll even sprinkle in God talk. May you be blessed by Yahweh, for you have had compassion on me. We have that type. We absolutely have that type today. And there's no reasoning with them. No, no, they know better. They don't care. They're stiff-necked. They're rebellious. What does Samuel say to Saul? That God 
desires obedience more than sacrifice. Saul would rather do whatever he wants and just pay for it later. And he will. He will. And so also the people in our situation who are these types, they will have to give an account to a holy and righteous God, to Almighty God himself. They will stand and give an account. And don't for a moment kid yourself. Oh, it's all just accidental. There's no cause and effect relationship between our attitudes, our behaviors, the schemes, the ambitions, the narratives of wicked men and what we're seeing in American cities. Don't kid yourself. Nothing could be more foolish in our day than supposing this is all random and accidental. No, it's purposeful, it's intentional, it's malicious, and what's sad, but don't lose heart. What's sad is there's no reasoning with it. The folks who are responsible have to be removed. The folks who are complicit have to admit that they've been complicit. They have to repent. They have to turn away. They have to stop doing what is corrupt. They have to stop giving and taking bribes. They have to stop siding with the many and perverting justice. Until they stop, this will continue and it will get worse. And at the end, it can get as bad as the whole country no longer being a country that is independent. Don't put it past the radical left to say, we'll just give the country over to China. We'll give the country to China and China can make all these problems go away. China knows. China knows what to do now. Don't put it past them. Not for an instant. Not for a moment. What's at root here? When it's wickedness, when it's jealousy, when it's envy, when it's malice, anything could be seen as profitable, worth it, when the ends justify the means, and they hate conservatives, and they hate Republicans, and they hate any Christian who would dare to speak up and say, no, stop, this is wrong, that's not true. They'll be able to rationalize, and I think they're already rationalizing, whatever it takes to go after who they hate the most. And it's not foreign enemies, it's domestic rivals, just like Saul and David. At the last, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, Saul breaks off his pursuit of David. It says, verse 28, So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. The Philistines had made a raid against the land. But then that is to say, too, only begrudgingly will the radical left admit that we have very real, very determined enemies here in America. Only very reluctantly will they turn away from trying to dismantle trying to destroy their domestic rivals. And maybe it'll be too little too late for a lot of folk who are just caught in the middle. You have to know that this is what it is, or you won't know when to hide yourself and you won't know how to be careful. You won't know how to make good decisions. You won't know who to be friends with and how to plan accordingly, how to mind your own affairs. For our last story though, let's turn to theblaze.com and An article by Peter Geitel, filed under Return, Tech by Blaze Media. It looks, by the way, as though theblaze.com has done a phenomenal job of overhauling their website. It looks really, really sharp. It looks really, really good to my taste. I like it. I like it a lot. But the title of this article is, No, Wired, Having Children Isn't Racist. (laughs) September 21st, 2023. About a month and some change ago, Peter Geidel writes, Sometimes you come across an op-ed 
so R-slurred, you know it had to have been written by an Ivy League graduate. Only a group of elites so thoroughly out of touch with their fellow man could conceive the horrors they conjure in their Brooklyn lofts. It's usually better to ignore, said Drivel, but occasionally it's helpful to investigate what it says about the culture. We come to one Leo Kim, he him, who recently wrote an article for Wired titled, Preferring Biological Children is Immoral. I love purposefully provocative writers who push the bounds of polite discourse to make a point. Alas, Kim lacks the verbal repertoire to rise above the profundity of stale water. His writing is usually of the variety, pointing out that big tech companies use nature terms like the cloud to seem less threatening and friendly to their audience. Hard-hitting stuff, indeed. So the reader must assume he actually believes what he's saying. Quote, For most of Western history, it was a given that a parent would want their children to be their direct progeny. Yet this prioritization of biological inheritance, biologism, as some call it, has recently become unsettled, end quote. One might ponder what someone with a master's degree in something called film aesthetics knows about genetics, but unfortunately, the readers of Wired are left hanging. This sounds like a person who thinks listening to NPR and getting Tibetan takeout makes him cosmopolitan, when in fact, he's never traveled besides study abroad. I can assure Kim that when traveling around South America, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East, the people I encountered seemed very much interested in having biological children. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the desire to procreate and build families is some horrid impulse from the past, he writes after this quote, this selection from the Wired piece. What we find is that when contextualized amongst other modern ethical norms, this preference can feel downright ancient, a vestigial remnant of a different epoch, a fossil no longer animated by the same moral intuitions that gave it gravity in the past. The desire to procreate and build families, Peter Geidel comments, is some horrid impulse from the past. Note the word ancient as a pejorative. Those philosophers and builders from the ancient world wanted offspring, ick. Fortunately, Kim explains that what is natural will change with gestational surrogacy or even womb transplants for transsexuals. Why not? When you can rent the womb of a, no doubt, less affluent woman or have a surgeon splice a uterus into a biological male, anything is possible. You will live to see man-made horrors beyond your comprehension. Quote, genetic provenance has long been used as a tool to construct and uphold white hegemony. Think of the legacy of the one-drop rule that erected whiteness around a logic of ancestral purity. The desire for biological ties in many ways can easily legitimize a racially inflected obsession with genetic history. End quote. What is this, right? What is this nonsense? It's not supposed to make sense. This is supposed to confuse you. This is supposed to sound really smart, but it's sophistry. This is not supposed to clarify anything. This is supposed to muddy the waters. And when you see this kind of nonsense, when you see somebody muddying the waters, stop and ask yourself, one, are they just not really clear on the topic? They're just thinking out loud. They're trying to process verbally. And in that case, will they receive, will they accept and welcome even, and thank you for helping them to process, helping them to organize their thoughts. Are they open to correction? Are they wise? Or, on the other hand, are they wise in their own eyes? If they're wise in their own eyes, there's more hope for a fool, Proverbs says. But if they're foolish and they're 
talking foolishness, if they really believe their own folly, you might wonder who put them up to it? Who told them this was a good idea? Who passed this on to be published? Who told them, yes, you should absolutely go with that? That's good. That's good stuff. What coalition of people lied to them and told them that this was good? Or what coalition of people want them to lie to you? And they know this is garbage. They know this is nonsense. But it's useful garbage for useful idiots to make useful idiots. Think about what we've covered in the way of other stories, other links from The Daily Wire, from Not to Be. Think about Oregon pausing any reading, writing, or math proficiency standards for high school graduation. And recognize you can have people with advanced degrees from expensive universities who got those fancy degrees much the same way that Oregon is going to be giving out high school diplomas for much the same reason. Because the radical left, the progressives, the godless have made a terrible mess of things. And the only way to paper it over is just keep on piling on. Just like money loses its value when you print half again as much as was already in circulation, but you haven't increased the availability of desired goods and services in the economy, what money there was in the economy is that much less valuable. So also, you can water down what it means to be intelligent, informed, educated, insightful by just handing out diplomas, handing out advanced degrees to folks who are willing to be obedient slaves. And that's, I think, where the new and improved Prussian model took on higher education and said, you know what, K through 12, five years old until around about 17 or 18, that's not enough. We need really idiotic people to oversee the less slavish common man. We need really idiotic people to go for another four years, six years, eight years in some cases. Not to say everybody who gets an advanced degree is an idiot. I'm not trying to suggest that. But a lot of the people who have these advanced degrees, they have multiple degrees. If they know better, they are the worst sort of liars because their lying is sophistry. So their character is extraordinarily bad. But when they say these kinds of things, either they are just that brainwashed or they're just that corrupt. And so we have, again, this response to Wired Magazine by Peter Geidel over at The Blaze having to explain that people all over the world for all of human history have preferred biological children. Why? Because all children are biological. There are a few myths, a few stories of people getting people getting children or getting maybe a spouse because they fashioned one through magic or the blessing of the gods. They made a statue. They made a wooden puppet. See also Pinocchio. See also Pygmalion. But except for those kinds of stories, it's always a man and a woman. It's always a husband and a wife, ideally, but not necessarily. A man and a woman. And if the children are claimed, they are usually biological children. That's not a Western convention. But what's interesting is to say, to suggest that wanting biological children is racist is the other side of the coin to saying 
that white couples adopting children from foreign countries, adopting children from Native American tribes or from Africa or from China or from South America, that that's also racism. What's the big idea? Everything you do is racist, which is to say you are racist. So everything you do is racist, which is to say if you're white and everything you do is racist because you're racist just because you're white, that is to say that the term is being projected onto folks because the one who's making the accusation is a racist, actually, ironically. So it's disingenuous and it's slanderous and it's not just and it's not sociable. So even though it's called social justice, it's doublethink. It's Orwellian, just like the Ministry of Truth in 1984 is not about truth. They're about hiding the truth. They're about concealing the truth. They're about lying. So also, these social justice warriors, they're not about sociability and they're not about justice. They're about perverting what you see as sociability and sowing division among brothers. They're about corrupting justice. And in this case, the injustice is that, say, my wife and I, as we're coming down the home stretch, and we might have our baby boy born any day now, maybe even today, my wife's water could break, and then she would have labor, and hopefully you can pray for us. It'll go quickly. It'll go smoothly. It'll go well. But this is the kind of injustice that these social justice warriors, these radical leftists, these pseudo-intellectuals are perpetrating that my wife and I would be accused of racism for, of all things, welcoming another baby into our family, another baby into our household. That's an injustice. If everything is racist, nothing is racist. If having a baby is racist, then nothing is racist. Everything is racist. This is inane. But you're not supposed to think too hard about it. There's just no sense to it. You're supposed to be intimidated. You're supposed to be confused. If you're feeling confused by it, that is actually the idea. You know, you're a few days ago. It was late and it was warm out in the evening. And so we had some of the windows open and all of our sons, with the exception of Nathaniel, who is not born yet. He was still in the womb, but all of our other sons had gone down to the basement for the night brushing their teeth, reading some books, working out, and then they were going to turn in and go to sleep. And it was just my wife and I and our daughter, Evelyn. And Lauren was looking at her phone, probably scrolling Instagram, quite honestly. I think she was looking at her phone. She might have been doing some pre-reading for one of the kids' classes, one of their required readings. Evelyn was either reading a book or working on Sudoku puzzles. And we couldn't help it. We couldn't help listening in and hearing that just a block over, catty corner to us, something was going on. And so I looked out the window, we looked out the window, and you could see flashing blue and red lights against the trees that peeked out above the rooftops between us and the house, one block over, catty corner. And you could hear every now and then, car doors, vehicle doors opening and shutting. You could hear somebody on a megaphone telling whoever was in a house, come on out with your hands up. And so we knew there was something going on, something involving law enforcement, somebody 
was thought to be a fugitive from justice. Somebody was thought to have broken laws and they were wanted and they were going to be taken into custody one way or the other. And so we're listening in and it sounds tense and it's going on and on and on. It felt like forever. I texted a friend of mine who's with the Greeley Police Department to ask, hey, do you know what's up? I know this is his area and this is where he commonly patrols this part of town where we live. He didn't text me back right away, but he did get back with me eventually. And what I found out was that there was a fugitive for whom a warrant was out for his arrest. I don't know what for, but there was a fugitive who was found to be in this house and the SWAT team was called in. And what my wife and I heard at one point was a loud bang. Immediately preceding that, law enforcement was talking to this guy who was in the house They were outside the house. They were talking to him through the megaphone. And then there was this loud bang. And then we heard, again, come out with your hands up or something to that effect. And that was it, right? That was all the more. And then maybe 15 minutes, maybe half an hour went by and there was no more noise. There were no more lights, catty corner, the next block over. But I asked my friend who is with the Greeley Police Department, the next day, I said, hey, what was that about? What ended up happening with that? Did the guy make it out okay? Or we heard a loud bang and he said, that was a flash bang. Yeah, nobody got shot. And I thought, oh, good, right? Because I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell the difference. The way sound travels between houses and one block over, all I knew was it was a loud bang. It could have been a gunshot for all I knew. Maybe he was shot by the cops. Maybe he took his own life rather than be arrested. But to find out that it was a flashbang, I was comforted. I thought, okay, well, good. You know, nobody died. In the meantime, that evening, I was, I was very sober. I was very sobered by the thought that maybe just one block over, somebody lost their life just now, right about the time that we're supposed to be turning in. We're supposed to be settling down for the night. We're supposed to be going to sleep. It's a very sobering thought. It's a very unpleasant thought. But to find out that it was a flashbang, I understood and I was glad. I was glad that nobody died. And yet I say all of that. I tell you that story because I think that articles like this in Wired Magazine being responded to by Peter Geidel over at The Blaze, I think articles like this are supposed to be a flashbang culturally. They're not supposed to actually kill anybody. They're not supposed to harm you per se necessarily. Nobody is actually going to believe these things, but if you're looking at them when they go off, if you don't have ear protection on when they go off near you, what's the purpose of a flashbang? It's to blind you temporarily. The flash part of a flashbang will blind you temporarily. What's the bang part? The bang part is so that your ears are ringing for a little bit and you're not going to hear as whoever is coming in to clear that room that you're in neutralizes you one way or the other. Either they shoot you if this is a wartime situation, or maybe they take you into custody. Maybe they just knock the weapon out of your hands and they apprehend you. They put handcuffs on you. They zip tie your hands behind your back. Either way, that disorientation, the disorientation of you not being able to see and not being able to hear is less than lethal But it is to the end of neutralizing you long enough, depriving you of your ability to see and to hear long enough to come in and disarm you. And 
either kill you or take you into custody. If you ask me, that's what articles like this saying that the preference for having your own children is racist. It's a holdover of European colonialism. That's what these things signify to me, a flashbang. And while you're disoriented, while you can't see straight, while you can't hear clearly, they come in and they take something away from you that would actually allow you to neutralize them. And it would actually hold them off. It was holding them at bay, but now they've taken it from you and now they do whatever they want. Hopefully they just want to take you into custody and ask you a few questions. Maybe they put you in prison for a long, long time. Maybe they get you to flip on somebody else, whatever they want. Once they've neutralized you, once they've disarmed you, that's what it is. Now it's up to them. Now they decide what to do with you and you don't get to make many decisions. If the flashbang works, going back to 1 Samuel 23, what is David's defense mechanism when Saul is seeking his life? What is his coping mechanism to not be there? (laughs) He's not going to be where Saul is. He and his men are not going to be where Saul and his men are. That's the only thing for it. Saul wants to neutralize these men, and he wants to neutralize by fear anybody who would give aid to David and his men. These kinds of people we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 23 are just that. They're kinds of men. They're not just men. They were men. I absolutely believe that David was a real man. Saul was a real man. These men really lived. They really did these things. I absolutely believe that, but they're not just Saul and David. Saul and David are types of men. The men who follow Saul and David are types of men. The people caught in the middle are types of men and women and children, of course. We have these same types. What type are we? God is still God. You should go to God. If the dilemma is there, we could do this, should we? Go to God. Ask God for wisdom, who gives generously to all without finding fault. For my part, I'm not going to apologize, not for an instant. I will not concede the point that my wife and I expecting our eighth son, our ninth child, anytime now, is racist. No, it's not. And either you're an idiot if you think that, or you're a liar. Either way, I don't trust you. (laughs) I don't. You should be instructed. You should be taught. You should be corrected. You should be rebuked. And if you're not wise in your own eyes, there's hope for you. There is more hope for a fool. You might be foolish in this regard. And in that case, I say, don't just go to God in an abstract sense. Go to his word. Study his word. You'll know better. It's God who said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He blessed the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, who I also firmly believe were real people, not just types of people, real people. God blessed the man and his wife and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, spread out, get married, have babies, raise those babies to love Jesus and to love each other and to love other people who alike are made in God's image, spread out all over the planet, fill it up, subdue it, exercise authority over the planet, not the other way around, not fly off to China and ask Xi Jinping What are the orders from Captain Planet? No, it's not a racist supposition that you would be fruitful and multiply, that you would love and delight in the wife of your youth and that you and her would have children, that you would be fruitful and multiply. 
That's not racist. One, it's part of common grace. This is common grace, general revelation, and it's common to all peoples. Everybody who exists now is descended from Adam and Eve. And then later on, Noah and his three sons and their wives. All of us, one race. The only reason that there are people in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, in the Americas, is because all of our ancestors did this thing. They did this thing. They were fruitful and they multiplied. And the fact that people, the descendants of Adam and Eve, the descendants of Noah and his three sons are on all of these continents is because they are doing the thing. They have been doing the thing, filling the earth and subduing it. The folks who want you to stop are not your friend. The folks who want you to stop having children and they want you to stop making the earth subject to your will, making it useful, exercising authority over it, those people are not your friends. Pro tip, those people want to sow division among brothers, which God hates. Those people want to steal and destroy, which God hates. Those people are liars. And if they've only been lied to, pity them, but don't trust them. If they're actively lying and they know better, watch out. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, both at the same time. In closing, I don't know when my wife Lauren will go into labor. I don't know when Nathaniel will be born. I am so thankful to God above, not just for Lauren, not just for the eight children, seven sons and one daughter who've been born to us, but I'm so thankful for Nathaniel. I haven't met him yet face-to-face. Anytime now, we'll get to meet face-to-face, and that is great. That is a huge blessing. And I don't boast when I say that. I say, God has blessed us. You don't like it? Take it up with God. I'll leave that for you to sort out with him. But that is to say, any day now, he'll be born. And maybe I won't record a podcast episode that day. We'll see. We'll play it by ear. If I don't put any new content out for a bit, be patient. There's plenty of older content you can go back to and listen. And oh, by the way, I notice that some of the episodes that I published last month or the month before have not gotten as many plays. And oh, by the way, it's going to be every third from September, from August, from July, from June, etc. Every third episode you'll find you may or may not have listened to if you're not a subscriber. If you're not subscribing for 99 cents a month, if you will subscribe for 99 cents a month, you'll get those episodes when they are published. If you won't, if you're not, then you'll just have to wait. But that is to say, I will be releasing them for general consumption, for the general public, the first day of every new month for the previous month. I don't know if everybody knows that, if everybody's caught that memo, but now you know. There's plenty of content you can go back to and listen to. Scroll around, check it out. For most of this year, I've been going a chapter of the Bible, at least per episode, at the beginning of every episode. I'm going to keep on doing that. I'm going to keep on making every third episode subscriber only. If that means that I don't have as many listens, okay, that's fine. That's all right. It is what it is. Many or few, I'll trust that the Lord will provide the increase and that this will be received by who it is supposed to be received by. This will be useful to who it is supposed to be useful to. Also too, just a quick note, as to my previous episode, 
on the life of Samuel Johnson because I did publish an episode yesterday reviewing the life of Samuel Johnson by James Boswell, an excellent biography. Some say it's the best biography in the English language, bar none. Others say it's the best biography in all of world literature. I don't know how anybody would assess that unless you've read all of the biographies in all the languages. I certainly haven't. But suffice to say, it's widely regarded as a very good biography. I found it to be a very good biography. Go back and check that one out. Subscribe for 99 cents a month, and you won't have to wait until November 1st. If you won't subscribe, then you'll have to wait, and that's fine. That's okay. But as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. Check out our next episode when it comes. I hope to talk about a piece by Aaron Wren from his newsletter, number 81, The Problem with Servant Leadership. I have lots of thoughts on that, but you will just have to listen to our next episode where I talk about that. Lord willing, we live and do this or that. For now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.